This is Toastcaster, your communication leadership and learning lab, your host, Greg Gazin, speaker, blogger, author, and syndicated veteran columnist of Troy Media. Episode 175, a conversation with the Buddhist CEO, with our guest, Thane Laurie. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Toastcaster. We have a special guest today. Thane Laurie is an award-winning CEO in his hometown country, Scotland. He's a graduate of the University of Aberdeen and University of Glasgow. Thane has had a diverse career, culminating in leading and transforming a once struggling social enterprise and going on to win numerous prestigious business awards, both locally and nationally, including being placed in the Sunday Times top 100 companies to work for in the UK. Thane is married with two sons and has been a practicing Buddhist for over 20 years. He's also the author of his first and appropriately titled novel, The Buddhist CEO. From Aberdeenshire in Scotland, Thane Laurie, welcome to the Toastcaster podcast. Thank you very much, Greg. I'm really looking forward to being on and thanks for asking me. Yeah, I appreciate the time and of course, congratulations on your your first novel. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time to read it. It was great. Now to kick us off, perhaps just tell us a little bit about the premise of the book. I'd always wanted to write a book and I thought long and hard about what I should write about. And a lot of the advice seemed to be write about something that you know about. And when I thought about it, I thought, well, I've been a CEO and I've been a Buddhist for many years. And I just wondered what I thought about that. That would be an interesting story. Um, How many people out there are struggling in a way that I did to try and combine their spiritual or religious beliefs with being a busy modern person with a stressful job. I really just want to explore that whole dichotomy or dilemma in the modern world. How do you live this? Try and follow a, a humble and maybe a worthwhile life, and how does that fit with it? the stressful modern world? Yeah. But interesting, if I understand correctly, you became both an accidental Buddhist and an accidental CEO. How did that all come about? <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's true, actually, yeah. I suppose I wasn't necessarily looking to become a Buddhist or become a follower of any religion necessarily, but I suppose a chance meeting with a a Buddhist monk, actually. I kind of explored Buddhism a little bit. I had a mild interest in it, and I went along to a meeting one night just as a sort of curiosity, really. But I was so impressed with the monk that I met that night who was giving the talk in Aberdeen City way back in the late 1990s. It just sort of drew me in and hooked me um, into Buddhism that night. And I just became really, really into it, interested in it, until eventually I started to practice it on a daily basis and consider myself a Buddhist. Likewise, in terms of becoming a CEO, I never set out to be a CEO. When I did become a CEO, I did enjoy it. But I just found that in my career, there was uh, opportunities opened up for me. And without necessarily really um, striving to achieve that, until I found myself in a company where, sadly, the chief executive passed away suddenly and unexpectedly due to a, a underlying health condition. And cutting a very long story short, I found myself in the position where I was asked to become a CEO um, temporarily um, to cover for obviously for the tragic death of our CEO. You had mentioned that you had developed a mild interest in Buddhism. And I'm just curious, was there something very specific? I think that um, it's quite interesting that people have asked this, you know, was I, was I, did I come from a religious family? And the answer to that is no, but my family maybe had their own religion in a way. 
And I think it was the outdoors, the wilderness. We went camping. We used to go in the outdoors, fishing, and spend a lot of time outside, hill walking, and traveling all over Scotland on our holidays. And I wonder if just there was something that maybe, thinking back on it, it's a lot of quiet time, whether you're fishing or you're walking in the mountains. I wonder if you touch upon something similar, a, a, a sense of peace, um, a sense of groundedness that maybe did appeal to me. And I wonder maybe then if I maybe did in some way instill um, something in my mind that um, led me to sort of seek out meditation and a more peaceful way of life. But I do sometimes wonder if that played its part in me seeking out uh, sort of religion or spiritual practice that had a, a lot of quietness and peace to it. So it sounds more like a philosophy rather than perhaps specifically a religion. What are perhaps some of the misconceptions that people have about Buddhism? It's an interesting question. Is it a philosophy or is it a religion? And I think you could actually ask different Buddhists that and get different answers. My take on it, it doesn't really matter if you think it's a philosophy or a religion, but if you put its general um, tenets into practice, um, you'll come to the same place, hopefully be a bit more grounded, a bit more humble, a bit more peaceful, a bit more compassionate, whether you think it's a religion or a, or a philosophy. Misconceptions about Buddhism? I think one of the things that maybe confuses people is that it doesn't have a god, where most religions are quite clear on um, there's like a god figure and an overarching sort of supernatural figure. So Buddhism doesn't doesn't have that. The Buddha, the historical Buddha, who's seen as the founder of the religion, who lived about 2,500 years ago in India, he very much was very clear that he saw himself just as a, as a normal man who discovered a, a sort of beautiful and worthwhile practice that could help people in their lives. In terms of the philosophy of religion debate, though, I don't think he necessarily didn't say anything about God, but he didn't necessarily rule out there was maybe something bigger than ourselves. And by meditating and being mindful, we can get in touch with that. And whether that's a psychological experience or a religious experience, Buddhists try and avoid that, in my experience. As soon as you try and say that's what it is, so I think that's exactly what it is, the next person meditating next to me maybe has a slightly different view. And we try to get away from that sort of constructed view and rather try and feel our way into it uh, through practice. So it's rather what we believe in our minds. It's what we practice in terms of um, trying to ground ourselves, be present to life, which hopefully allows us to be more um, open and compassionate rather than sort of trying to get fixed and rigid on ideas of how things are. Buddhism very much takes a view that in some ways that's a bit of a false um, game to get into. Yeah, we can all disagree quite quickly on what, what is reality, but if we actually practice being in the now, we all have a sense of being and well-being, uh, which is more important to Buddhists than actually getting too fixated on exactly what they believe or exactly how the world is. And that can be maybe quite confusing from the outside, but from somebody on the inside of Buddhism, I think it's actually part of its strengths. We don't follow other religions either, so I see Buddhism as a beautiful thing. But I don't see it any better than another religion. I see it as equal to. And I think science maybe that can confuse people a little bit, but it's actually a beautiful practice and can bring a lot of yeah, a lot of peace and a lot of can do a lot of good in the world. Okay, perhaps you could share with us, uh, Thane, what are some of the core principles, the ones that specifically resonate with you that people can use in their everyday personal life and work life? I think one of the greatest revelations maybe to me um, about Buddhist practice 
was very much this, um, I suppose, this idea that an enlightened life or a more enlightened life can actually be found here and now in everyday things. Buddhism very much takes the view that enlightenment isn't necessarily something to that we have to wait for in the future or to be found in a, a mystical mountain top. It can be found in everyday things. Uh, and by that, I mean that it's about being present to our life. So even if we are making our tea, we're washing our clothes, we're walking down the street, we're at our work, we can actually be fully present to our life. And we can actually feel quite a lot of joy and contentment with anything that we're doing. It doesn't have to be something special. But one of the ways I heard Buddhism described recently was it's ordinary people doing ordinary things in a transformational way. And uh, or in an extraordinary way, and I think that can be sound quite easy, but it's quite difficult when you first come to it, and maybe even after you've been practicing it for a while. Because what the Buddha sort of pointed out was that we are very rarely present to our life. So whether we are washing our clothes, driving the car, whatever we may be doing, we're quite often not fully present to it. What we're doing, we're thinking of the future, or we're thinking of the past. What was said in a meeting, or what we're, what we're worried about in the future, rather than actually be fully present to the task we're doing. But when we actually bring our attention to what we're fully doing, so whether it's cooking a meal, walking down the street, we're fully present to it, aware of what we're doing, we're not distracted with thoughts of the future or the past. I found that simple tasks can become um, things that I was indifferent to. They actually become um, areas or um, opportunities to actually live a full, enlightened life. So for me, it was this practical approach to life about living in the moment, being being fully present to our life. I just found that as being quite um, quite a revelation. And I think in our modern world, we're often taught that happiness is to be found in something that's coming down the line, the saving for a bigger house or the, the better holiday or the better clothes. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these things. Buddhism's actually saying that, I'm not saying these things aren't kind of bring some level of happiness, but we can actually find happiness whatever we are and whatever we're doing. Interesting. I, as you're speaking that, I'm thinking about some of the qualities that I admire if I think about a Buddhist monk, about you know their dedication to their routines. Uh, they seem to do things in a sort of a calm and deliberate manner. And of course, that's one of the reasons why the book resonated with me and it piqued my curiosity, specifically the title, you know, for years. And I've been so totally on the go, running two businesses, dealing with family, dealing with health, dealing with volunteer things that I do. Now, I, I did occasionally do some yoga, a little bit of meditation, but I always yearn for that calmness. And while I've shifted a little bit, I still don't feel that I've got there. And I'm thinking to myself, as you're speaking, as you're sharing about this enlightenment through everyday activity, realistically, how can we be in the moment when we have things like these mobile devices that have become pretty much an appendage? Mm, yeah, good question. Well, I certainly don't think it's easy. <laughs> and I think it's a, a battle. I suppose that's a, a theme of the book. How do we reconcile those two worlds? And the uh, experience of the main character in the book and my own experience, also personal experience, was that it was quite difficult to do. But because it's quite difficult, doesn't mean to say it's not worth trying, <laughs> given a, a real good go to it. I think there is, it is worthwhile in this modern world. I think, I think hopefully Buddhism or even a Buddhist type approach to life, there are some people who just take the mindfulness and meditation from it, and I think that's okay as well. I think it does offer something to this, uh, an antidote to the modern world. So. And I think looking at 
you mentioned there you were inspired by this sort of monastic kind of approach. I think taking some of that into our own lives is a good thing. And I think it is just trying to slow ourselves down. It is maybe trying to have a, certainly we talk about Buddhist practice, something that's worthwhile, something we do every day, something we commit to, start the day with meditation, try and bring mindfulness into some of the tasks we do during the day. And there's other practices in terms of coming together with fellow Buddhists or fellow committed people, enjoying that fellowship with them and inspiration from each other is worthwhile doing. And certainly I find I occasionally go and retreat to the monastery. Obviously the monastery, you put your kind of phone away when you arrive there and it's, it's away. And I find that it really highlights to me just even if somebody was trying to do this, how, how often, how much I rely on that phone. And I'm 50 years old, so I remember most of my, most of my life I didn't even have a phone. And I think in the modern world, it's trying to just, I'm not saying cut them off entirely um, because we're not living as monks, but I think it's trying to find a balance with it. I think the modern model, we can just get so caught up and our minds never stop. And um, it's a real concern that because I think the more your mind's in that way, the more unwell you are and the more caught up you become and the less easy it is to find peace. One thing about Buddhism as well is that we're also not trying to set up ideals. So I think it's important to um, remember compassion is the key of Buddhist practice. And I think compassion can often be easy to give to other people, but it can often be harder to give to ourselves. Well, there's also a little bit about being a Buddhist practitioner who is stressed or who is busy. That is where you are as well. That is part of your life. And as a part of that, being okay, being okay with imperfection. I think leaders can be Buddhists, and you're clearly a leader, doing doing, um, multiple roles and complicated roles. And there's also a certain about being at peace with that for a while in terms of trying to bring as much peace in, into that as you can, but accepting you're busy and not necessarily seeing that as wrong either. It's finding a balance with that and maybe trying to balance that with having a time for your meditation practice in the morning or going away for a week or a, a weekend retreat. But I think there's something about we also need engaged, we also need compassionate leaders who are busy people. And I don't think becoming a Buddhist or a meditator necessarily takes that away I think that's okay. Hopefully it can bring um, a different quality to that busyness that allows you to still be busy, but be as grounded as you can be within that. I hope that makes sense. (laughs) You know, I'm still thinking as an individual, I can sort of see that being able to be put into practice. But if you think of someone, for someone who was in your position, the CEO, right? It's situations, I mean, it's crazy busy, it's chaotic 24-7, you're always pretty much on call. And then you look at the other side of it, you see a Buddhist monk who's just so totally Zen. These two concepts just seem so diametrically opposed. How can you find yourself, how how can you become successful in this type of environment, though? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I actually wonder if this kind of tension goes on for so many people um, around the world. Privileges of writing this book, actually, the amount of people that have read have reached out to me and said, I thought a similar way, and they weren't necessarily Buddhists, because I hope the book appeals to anybody who has a religion or has a spiritual approach to life. And my people have said to me, well, I'm successful in the face of it. I run a company, but inside I wanted to be a, a yogi or I was a committed Christian. And I wonder if that, this dilemma is actually more common than we think. And many of the leaders I met were ethical people. Now, whether they were ethical just because they were uh, maybe a moral atheist or they were 
it felt they were a moral person because of their the religion they followed and they were trying to follow the main teachings of that. Now, a lot of them became leaders because they wanted to make a difference for the good, um, for the good of the company, the good of themselves, but quite often for the, the betterment of the staff, the customers, and the betterment of society, particularly in the non-profit sector. And I quite admired them all. It was very few people to me when I met went into leadership just solely to make money and just solely to sort of, um, you know, just so, in a sort of soulless way. They all had something moral about them that, I, that people I met that I quite admired. And they often had a, a tension between just how busy they were and uh, maybe a, a sense of personal achievement that they managed to achieve this. But also there was this yearning in them for this more quieter life, whether it was a, a life of yoga practice or prayer or Buddhist meditation. And... Um, yeah, I think it's a tension that maybe exists in many people around the world. I think being a leader, we have to look after leaders. And um, I think that often leaders are thinking about their company, thinking about their staff. How often do we think about them? And I think a lot of leaders are actually struggling. They may be very successful on the outside. But a lot of the leaders I got close to, including myself, we looked at them and thought, but you can see signs of stress in them. You can see signs of their health being affected by that despite them being successful. So I actually wonder maybe if it's imperative that leaders do think about their spirituality and how to look after themselves in a spiritual as well as a, as well as a sort of physical health kind of way. And I think being grounded, being compassionate, is quite a good springboard for a leader to come from in terms of looking after the company and, 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 and trying to produce something that's worthwhile and um, you know, makes a positive impact in the world. I think what you're saying and what you're f- discovering from hearing from others is just so, so true. I know, again, as I mentioned before, I was running two businesses. Things were going things were going crazy. And I just had this yearning for some sort of calmness, just wanting to slow down. But yet if I decided I was going to shut my door to my office and just take some time out for myself, I would feel a little guilty. But yet I also realize that when the doctor tells you, Greg, you got to slow down, you got to take it easy, you got to relax, that something needs to be done. And one of the things that I remember uh, him telling me was that, you know, when you when you're on a plane and they give the announcements, the emergency announcements, and they say, okay, fine, if the if the mask comes down, you need to cover your face first and then look after your little one. So you have to look after yourself first <laughs> to be able to look after others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's quite a good analogy, yeah. And I think um, certainly in my own life, I think that's, and my observations of other people, is that's quite often not the case. Um, quite often we find it easy to be compassionate to other people. I think as a leader, I could certainly think about how we brought in initiatives to the company to try and improve staff's well-being and health, and I was 100% committed to that. Whereas in reality, maybe I wasn't always committed to doing that to my own to my own person. and. Um, Somebody's thinking back, that seems crazy now. But like you say, I think it's very common. I think more and more leaders are are aware of the the impacts upon stress and the the busy lives. Now, hopefully, over time, we can start to help leaders to to try and really really find that balance or find more balance. Maybe finding a perfect balance is always difficult in those positions. I think opening up doors and allowing people or giving them techniques through meditation and mindfulness and, and look after themselves can only be a good thing. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about, you'd mentioned earlier, you mentioned the word compassion, and I'm still thinking back to when I first read the book. I was immediately enthralled in the book when Hamish found himself at odds with the character Elaine, 
<laughs> My late wife's name was Elaine, but she was a very oh. different person. Now, in your case, your character, Elaine, was obviously deceitful. Uh, she betrayed Hamish's trust. And of course, it ended up in this big legal and entanglement. Yet, contrary to what you'd think many typical CEOs would do, Hamish didn't hold a grudge and he showed compassion. And to me, again, that seems like that's one of those huge dilemmas, the dichotomy between uh, Buddhism and what you would typically think of a CDO, CEO. I'm just curious, could you tell us a little bit about maybe that thought process and how you decide what direction to take when you're you're feeling compassion in these types of situations? Yeah, I think for me as a leader and what I try to convey with that um is I always found Buddhism helped me take some of these decisions. And Hamish, the main character in the book, he felt that as well. And one of the things that Buddhism has is um, all, there's different Buddhist schools, and I won't go into all that, but they're all agreed upon. They have a, what they call these precepts, like guides to life. And the first five are agreed upon, and the type of Buddhism I follow is 10. We all agree upon the first five. But they're, they're moral principles, a bit like the Ten Commandments, but we don't see them as commandments. We see them as really things we try and train with. So refrain from killing, refrain from stealing, etc. I always felt that was a really good kind of moral, um, a moral sort of compass for me in leadership. So I always felt it helped me know who I am and how I will act when situations arise. One of the things I always felt, as does Hamish in the book, was that people deserved a chance. Now, it doesn't mean to say people got away with it. They deserved a chance. And maybe some caveats to that. If somebody did, you know, committed gross misconduct, something really, really terrible, maybe you can't come back from that. But as a general rule, deserved a chance. And I think Hamish felt that, that everybody deserved a chance. And he'd given Elaine a few chances, but she'd gone too far and ended up in the tribunal. But even then, he could see that her behaviour, although it was um, extreme at times, it was clearly... Are confused and vindictive against him, he could he often wonder, well, what was the driver behind that? You know, what was her traumas that caused her to act in that way? And eventually, he could only go so far, but uh, and he did have to eventually well, go to the tribunal, the whole legal case. But I feel there's a, there's a Buddhist story um, called and the Monkey King. It was written in China a long time ago, hundreds of years ago. And quite a long story that the monkey king is um, cast out of heaven because he's so misruly. And the leading god at the time sends him down to earth and he has to uh, accompany this monk in this epic journey across China and he's to fight off all the bodies. So this monk can travel across with the, uh, the China uh, undisturbed with the, Buddhist, uh, with, the, with the Buddhist teachings. And she puts this gold band on his head, and um, any time he becomes unruly or misbehaves, it causes him pain, and he has to start behaving well again. Cut a very long story short, he helps the, the monk achieve, achieve the aims of taking these scriptures across the country. But he then says, I can take that off now, they can take this gold band off. And the monkey says, no, I'll have to keep it on, because he realises that... Um, he actually feels better with it on. It's taught him how to live and helped him to live well and avoid all the mistakes he was making. And it turns out these were the, actually the Buddhist precepts that he, this gold band were meant to represent. It's a story that's always stuck in my mind that, you know, that having a moral compass and having a, a moral kind of, um, yeah, that's a moral standpoint can help you in leadership because I felt as a Buddhist, it was always a chance to give people a chance. And by that I mean, 
sometimes people, it was pointed out to them that their behaviour was causing these problems. Sometimes they were embarrassed by it and didn't actually realise they were actually causing these issues within their office and uh, changed their behaviours and we could all move on, it was fine. So I always felt it was quite a, a compassionate thing to do. But at the same time, if they didn't change their behaviour, I think it allowed me to think, well, I've been fair, now we must take a different action. But I also felt as a leader that, I felt you had to take action around these things because oh, sometimes the word toxic people are people you know that are, dis- are disruptive in an organisation. I think they're not dealt with can cause a lot of problems. And it's maybe uncompassionate not to deal with them, even though it can be very stressful dealing with them. So I don't know. I felt that this sort of moral kind of um, outlook and guide, I suppose, that Buddhism gave me, and Hamish fills that in the book, allowed him maybe approach his leadership with some certainty about how he was going to cope with certain situations. Yeah, I'm thinking back to this this particular story. Hamish is obviously trying to follow his moral compass and he's looking at showing compassion towards Elaine. But at the same time, he's also thinking about some of the ramifications. And what I really appreciate in the book is instead of just rolling out the story as it transpired, you also had the character Hamish having this internal dialogue and you were sharing that internal dialogue as he moved towards the decision that he was going to make. And I found that actually quite powerful. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. I think that's why, why I, in many ways, it's really interesting you picked up on that. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book in that way, because initially I, I had wondered, you know, I could write almost a, a textbook, how I approach leadership as a Buddhist. And uh, that might have been interesting in its own way, but what I felt as a leader was that almost courses or textbooks Although I found, I try in any course I do, or any book I read around, I always try and take something from it. But very few of them um, discuss that little inner dialogue. You know, how do you, how does that person feel when they're in that leadership position when they go home at night? And uh, I think that there's a lot of turmoil because I wanted to sort of capture that and describe it. And I think it's these people that have reached out from the book all felt that it was kind of almost universal. And I'm sure it is because you become a leader. There are certain things where you know, you're an expert in your field, you know, you understand that we need to have finances and budgets and, you know, you maybe make sure there's marketing and all these things. But, but very, very few people then tell you, how are you supposed to feel when you go home at night when you've dealt with some of these things? How do you emotionally process these things? And I wanted to give some insight into that. And in some ways, I maybe I'm, I'm raising more questions and giving answers because it's so complex and Maybe, maybe so individualized to each leader. But I wanted to sort of describe that inner dialogue that I think so many leaders suffer with to sort of show, show the human side of that and just how difficult these things are. Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, you're dismissing Elaine. What's going to happen with her family? I'm sure those are the things that, that resonate with you. And you kind of wonder, okay, am I doing the right thing? Should I give her another chance? Obviously, obviously you gave her a number of chances, but obviously at the end of the day, you had to make a final decision. And I'm sure even though you came to that logical conclusion or emotional conclusion, I'm sure Hamish still felt challenged and felt hurt maybe at the end of the day. Yeah, I think Hamish, um, I think he definitely felt disappointed by that. He knew ultimately it was the right thing to do, but it still didn't make him feel any better about it. And again, I think that's quite common in the leaders I've met and admire that they really went into leadership for the really, the really good things, you know, to 
create something good, to create a great company, to create a great culture, to deliver great services, and almost the high that you get from that, um, that's a natural high you get from that, is almost um, almost don't come across that in many aspects of life. But then you, when you, leaders really come across the um, reality then that while they achieve these things, almost seems to be universal that the, 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 the staffing element, the human element is the real difficulty where there always seems to be disagreements or factions in a business. People don't get on with each other. And um, it's these things that sort of wear people down and get the shine off of that, you know, real leadership magic maybe that, that can happen when you're making things happen in a, in a positive way. And I think, um, yeah, I think many leaders go home at night who are very successful and do a great job. And really, what's what sort of when they go to bed at night? It's often not those things I think about. It's often the really difficult human situations they have to deal with, the difficult interactions that really can take their toll. I think, and it really is really difficult for people to handle. Agreed. You know, it's funny. I'm thinking back. I kept saying you and Hamish in the same sentence, and I'm thinking, okay, the the book is a novel. It's fiction, but yet. Thane, you're both a CEO and a Buddhist. So I'm curious, is this book somewhat autobiographical? Could we call it maybe a fictional memoir? Yeah, I mean, I think actually Amazon actually classed it as a fictional biography. And uh, there is a lot of me in the book. There's no doubt about that. I've always said it's loosely based on my life. And initially, I did think about writing a memoir, you know, just with purely with about me and the company I worked at and the people I, you know, the situation I came up against. But I decided really that was unfair because I'm still connected to the company when I was CEO. I'm the vice chairman there and um, still heavily involved in it. And, and they didn't um, ask me to write about them. The people I actually, you know, worked with didn't ask me to write about them. So I felt it was important to develop a fictional character, a fictional company and Fictional situations are universal, and I can draw upon. I drew upon you know, things that have happened in my career, but also in other people's career, and they've shared stories with me as well. So I was able to set up a fictional world, really, and it was quite fun doing that. But yeah, some of it is drawn upon me, and it came from some of my dilemmas came across, particularly the spiritual dilemmas. Yeah, so things like you know, like Throstle Hole Buddhist Abbey is in the book where Hamish goes for his um, spiritual retreats with the monks. So that's a real place, although the monks mentioned in the book aren't real monks, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's in a real place. Yeah, so yeah, there's a lot of me in there, and the situations and the people, I wasn't really an Elaine, similar situations, and I think most leaders who run a business will have come across yeah, maybe some of these problems are universal staffing issues, and I, I drew upon these things. So there's a lot of me in there, but it's it's not wholly me. I think it's great because I think then you're able to say things that without trying to specifically point somebody out. And the other thing, of course, is that being both a Buddhist and a CEO, you have both that experience and you have authority. And what it does is it also gives your characters credibility rather than just somebody that just pulled something out of thin air. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's quite interesting. I had quite a few ideas about books and that, that I could have written, but I, I felt it was quite strongly there's a lot of emphasis right up on what you know about. And I thought that was two areas I did know about. So I hope that does give the, give the credibility. Yeah. There's one section in the book 
that I found really very valuable. And you talked about how Hamish is a CEO. And of course, as a CEO, sometimes one finds oneself alone at the top. But yet you came up with this, what was it called? An executive collaboration or an executive fellowship? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there's a chapter in the book, chapter eight, called The Fellowship of the CEOs. And Hamish begins to sort of struggle with some of these um, issues, I suppose. He He's a successful CEO in the face of it, but you know he's beginning to struggle with his board, his relationship with his chairman, and some of the staffing issues, Elaine being one of them, but there are other ones described in the book as well. And he's, it's beginning to wear him down. And he begins to think, well, all the training I've done and you know, courses I've done, none of, none of them ever talked about these feelings. You know, they talked about marketing and finance and how to run the business. And um, but none of these courses touched upon how we might feel. He begins to wonder, is it just me? Or do other CEOs feel the same way? But he reaches out to a couple of CEOs he's quite friendly with um, and he speaks to them privately and discovers that when he when he asks them these questions, how do they deal with these situations or do they come across these situations as well? And if so, how do they deal with them? He finds, like him, on the face of it, he's successful, but they also struggle with these these things. They would also quite like to be able to sort of speak to other people about it. So they agree to create a fellowship of the CEOs and um, it's a group of about 10 CEOs come together and they agree to conduct a meeting um, every well, I think six weeks or so and share the frustrations of the job in a way that they agree to be protected. They won't tell anybody else out with the meeting and they, they share their feelings and if all of them find it a very um, a great opportunity to sort of learn from each other and find support and really and they almost come to love this meeting and look forward to it and as the meetings go on, they realise that they all share similar um, fears and concerns. They almost all struggle with their board of directors and chairperson, even though they might admire their board of directors and, and their chairperson. There's that, that sort of tension between maybe the board wanting excellence and striving for the best and maybe never quite achieving just exactly what they want. There's just a constant tension there that probably wears them down to some degree. And again, universally amongst the CEOs that he meets in the fellowship, they almost all have some incredible number of staffing stories and they've all ended up in some sort of legal situation at some point in their careers. And they share that. But there's something about the sharing it for Hamish and he, he thinks probably for the other CEOs in the meeting that is a real kind of um, eye-opener and a real kind of reassurance that they're not actually alone. Other people in these positions feel the same way. And they all feel that tension as well, that as a leader of the organisation, they find it difficult to show their emotional struggles within their business and because they feel they've got to set the tone and they want to be you know, positive and always show us a kind of positive outlook. And they all have this great sort of um, affinity with each other when they find this group and set up this group. And I do wonder if it's a semi-model for people going forward, if CEOs are... Even just senior leaders can find a similar group. And I think ideally it works best for people out with their own business and you set up some meeting it's trusted that potentially uh, you know, there's one way. I don't think I ever found a, a course that explained how to deal with that. But I think when you actually speak to other people who are dealing with these difficult situations, it really can be a very almost therapeutic 
uh, experience. Yeah, it's almost like a support group, I guess, if yeah. for some respects. And people are on the same level as being CEOs or they could be even group managers. I think uh, yeah. that's very powerful. And for me, I think that was a huge, uh, a huge takeaway for me. For example, we're having run my businesses. I found myself in that situation a number of times. It's like, okay, you can talk to your right-hand person. And you can talk to some of your staff and employees. And of course, they're obviously very good often in being able to let you know what's happening on the ground. But sometimes it's difficult for them to see things at the level that you're at. And I found that actually a very powerful takeaway from the book. Thank you for that. Thank you. Now, Thane, your book, besides being a great read, has a lot of valuable insights and a lot of takeaways. So besides reading this book, how can people use this book? to be able to continue to be the great CEO, the great manager, the great person they are, but at the same time, be able to take advantage of the sort of calmness and Zen that uh, Buddhism provides. Yeah, there's a few takeaways from the book. I think Hamish, near the end of the book, struggles with the stress and becomes ill. In some ways, maybe he's the the canary down the mine. You don't want to be, you don't want to reach the situation that Hamish gets into. And he manages to recover from that, and a lot of that he uses as Buddhism. I think it's you know considering how you can sort of deal with that and still be a functioning manager. So Hamish would encourage people to take a spiritual approach to their leadership, and by that I mean developing a, a spiritual practice, trying to be present to their lives here and now, uh, and that includes the workplace. It's so easy, particularly as a senior person, to be caught up with so many thoughts. Can um, you know somebody be inspired to develop a practice? Whether it's a Buddhist or not, it doesn't really bother me. But it's something that grounds them. For me, it's been meditation and sort of mindfulness. Thought about the precepts as well. You could even make up your own precepts, you know, as long as it's something that's meaningful to you. I think it's taking that approach into life, letting things go. You know, the big things, you know, trying to be present to it, and maybe having that sort of perceptual approach, which allows you to think, this is how I'm approaching my leadership journey. This is how I'm approaching my dilemmas, my leadership dilemmas. And give you a sort of um, a grounded approach to it, a balanced approach to it. And I think we need to look at, I think the book encourages leaders to look after themselves. Do be a compassionate leader. Do be a positive leader. That doesn't, that's not something to run away from. It doesn't mean you're weak. In fact, it means you're strong. Be willing to be that person. Look after yourself along the way and hopefully allow you to look after the people in your company and customers as well. So I hope it maybe allow people to think about you know, how they can bring that into their lives, a bit of peacefulness, a bit of quiet, but still be a positive and constructive leader. Absolutely. That sounds like a great start. Now, Thane, I understand that the book is available pretty much everywhere on Amazon. Yeah, it's on Barnes & Noble. It's on um, Amazon as well. Bookshops should be able to order it. Thane Laurie, the Buddhist CEO. But I also understand that you also have a blog and you put out posts on a regular basis. Yeah. I mean, if people are interested in the book or interested in following what I'm up to, I have a, a website, which is my name, thanelaurie.com. I do a blog about twice a month. One of those posts is generally um, an update on what's been happening in the book. And one other post tends to be just some thoughts on life, quite often leadership from a sort of Buddhist angle, quite often. And I'll have links to my social media sites there as well. So Twitter, I suppose, is my main one and LinkedIn, but I, I do Facebook as well. But I put out a morning poem every morning just to sort of inspire people. They're all free. If anybody ever interacts with me there, I always get back to them as well. So feel free to follow along. 
We'll certainly put all that information in the show notes. Thane Laurie, the Buddha CEO, once again, congratulations on your new book. And thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you very much, Greg. It's been a pleasure. Once again, this is Greg Gazin. We appreciate you tuning in. Now, I'm not sure how you joined us, whether you joined us through directly through Toastcaster.com or iTunes, but either way, you can pick up the podcasts there. If you really enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you took a moment to leave us some feedback on iTunes because it really helps with our ratings. Plus, also feel free to drop us a line. Tell us what types of things you're interested in, what your Toastmaster specialty is, or what kinds of things you like to speak about. And perhaps maybe we'll even have you on the show. This is Greg Gazin. Till the next time. This episode was sponsored by Corey Outsmarts the Butterflies, a new book by Greg Gazin, geared to ages 8 to 80. Whether you want to improve your speaking skills or build your confidence, this short read is suitable for all ages. It's available at outsmartingthebutterflies.com. Outsmarting the Butterflies.com.